702 on 92.7 and 106 FM. Streaming on 702.co.za. The 702 app. And on DSTV channel 856. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Midday Report. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Midday Report. My name is T.D. Madia. It's six minutes past 12. I'm in for Mandy Wiener this week. I see breaking news that the Joburg bus strike has been declared unlawful. Remember, we spoke to the business um, the business rescue practitioner yesterday and he said he felt there was no choice but to go to court. So we'll speak to him in just a little while to find out what is the latest development on that story? We'll also go to Soshanguve, where two suspects who have um, appeared in court over the New Year's Day shooting in Jukulain. We'll go to Boxburg, as you heard in the bulletin, where 42-year-old man is expected to appear before the courts in the afternoon. We'll look at the aftermath of the devastation of the inclement weather in KZN. Border management authorities had its hands full with travelers making their way back into the country. We'll also speak to Zamani Sol, the ANC Northern Cape chairperson, he's grappling with the question of whether 30 years is enough to eliminate the enduring impact of apartheid. We'll also touch base with Dr. Ibrahim Harvey, a political commentator who tries to make sense of the Zuma MK party as well as the ANC quagmire that's currently playing itself out. You can weigh in on any of these stories, 072-702-1702, We'd love to hear from you. Your voice notes, WhatsApps, all welcome. Working this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. Right, as I was saying to you, I see that there is a development around Ria Vaya. We did speak to the business rescue practitioner yesterday, Mahir Tayob, and he was saying his hands are tied, that there are issues around 13th checks, uh, extra, I think it's 13th checks, there were issues around what he's also trying to make sense of the books at Piotrans, the operator who, of course, has now been placed under business rescue. The board has been um, dissolved. Mahir Tayob joins me now on the line. Thank you so much for your time. Good afternoon. Let's just get into to it so you were going to go to court you've done so and there is an outcome that is correct good afternoon to you and to your listeners yes speak to me about what the court process was i don't yesterday you did say you felt there was no other choice but to take this unlawful strike to the labor court correct well the labor court agreed with our petition and issued the following terms that the strike embarked upon the striking price declared to be unlawful and or unprotected that the striking employees are interdicted and refrained from embarking on any unlawful and unprotected strike at the applicant's business premises or continuing to participate in a picket in any unlawful and unprotected strike at the premises or blocking access to the premises, public roads, public, uh, private roads and other parts of accesses or any access points leading to or allowing access to the premises or interrupting the applicant's business and operations at the applicant's premises or threatening to damage the applicant's premises, building, motor vehicles, and or equipment in any way or form. So this order has now been granted. We're just waiting for the registrar to issue it so that I could then uh, fast track it to the sheriff for for service to all affected uh, persons as well as employees. And of course, unions. Mahia, yesterday you spoke about the issue of pushback. You spoke about sabotage. Do you see this court order being respected? Do you see the buses coming back? And I did point out uh, yesterday that people are going back to work. Riavaya is a crucial part of the commuter life in Joburg. Do you see the order being respected and operations resuming? Well, if the intention is purely to sabotage, of course they're going to 
they're going to dishonor the order. In which case, then I will issue a second ultimatum and then start with immediate dismissal. If not, I will bring an application to compel and even request an arrest for violating a court order. But at least we have the victory. The court has applied its mind and determined that this is an unlawful strike. The employees have the election now to either respect the court order or violate it, in which case I will proceed as earlier iterated. And just before I let you go, Transport MMC, Kenny Kunene had made a, a, a vow to make sure that you are supported even by JMPD um, law enforcement officials in the city. Has there been a need, particularly around the depots, to try and protect the buses? Are there concerns about the safety of buses? Um, often in these strikes, we do see them be- being targeted. Are you worried at all about the depots? Well, in, on the assumption that the workers resume you know, voluntarily, we wouldn't have no problem. I do not foresee any further threat. In the event that they don't, and I bring in uh, uh, drivers that are on a temporary basis, then I foresee a certain amount of threat. I will then ask the MMC to, to live up to his promise and provide the JMPD to assist in this, in this regard. All right, thank you so much. I'm going to leave it there. That's Mahir Tayyab, the business rescue practitioner looking after Pyotrans, the operator of the Ria Via buses, saying that there is a court victory, saying that the bus drivers who went on strike, it is unlawful. They must go back to work. He says they're waiting for the sheriff in order to uh, in need to, to, to um, serve the unions, rather, with the court order that they should be back at work. It's the second day without Ria Via buses operating in the city of Joburg. Um, there is concerns around issues of sabotage so it's a story that you kind of have to wait and see how it plays out whether or not there would need to be stricter measures in making sure that conditions are correct for buses to go back or whether workers will come to the party he's maintained that some of the demands are unreasonable there's a question about the books there's widespread claims of graft at Piotrans and that's part of the reason why he's been appointed a business rescue practitioner to get the books in order to recoup some of the money that's been taken and hopefully make sure that some people end up in orange jumpsuits behind uh, behind jail. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. I meant behind bars in jail. That's what I meant. Um, we turn our attention now to Sosha Nguve. Two suspects were arrested on Tuesday following the fatal shooting of four people in the Sosha Nguve Block P area, otherwise known as Juku Lane, are due in court today. The four included a four year, 14-year-old Voyole Tuzuela, her uncle Mpo Khobotlo, and his two friends Pumalang Mulaka Patro, I must get that right, and Tando Zamini. We cross now to EWN's Alpha Ramuswana, who is at the court. He joins us now on the line. Alpha, good afternoon. Thank you for your time. Let's start with who's there. Um, before even looking at what's unfolded inside the court, I understand this is a community that's been terrorized by crime. I imagine residents also want answers as to what happened on New Year's, uh, New Year's Day. Yes, good afternoon. The community of Soshanguve, particularly Jugu Lane uh, or Block P, are here outside the magistrate's court in Soshanguve, uh, voicing their support uh, for the four people who were killed on New Year's Day, the 1st of January. And they are here, uh, and they were also in the courtroom. Uh, the case has just been postponed briefly. Uh, but they were in the courtroom, and they were very angry the moment they laid their eyes on two people who've been arrested in connection with the murder of four people, including a 14-year-old child. And we have heard them, you know, uh, voicing out, 
towards uh, those two suspects. And it was then when uh, the defense in this case uh, started saying that this, uh, these two suspects, should they be released in any way, they are in danger of, you know, mob justice here in Soshangube. Mm-hmm. Previously, there have been similar incidents of mob justice in this community. Let's zero in on those suspects. What do we know about the two people who made an appearance? I imagine a short appearance before the court. Yeah, of course. It was a very, very short and first appearance here at the Soshanguva Magistrates Court. It's 30-year-old Tepo uh, Musemeni and 33-year-old Sipo Komu. Both are uh, charged with or facing charges of uh, attempted murder, four charges of attempted murder and also one charge of uh, four charges of murder, actually, and one charge of attempted murder. And, of course, we've also heard reportedly that on the scene of uh, the shooting, police found about 90 cartridges of uh, rifle cartridges and uh, we also heard that they were wearing bulletproof vests and it has insisted uh, the community has been saying that this that you know the hit uh, they were paid to do the job and of course they are saying that they want to know who uh, the kingpins or uh, who are the people behind these people who sent them to do these shootings so at the moment we do know their name and their ages we do know that they are also residents of Soshangube and they have been uh, uh, remanded in custody. They will be back in court on uh, the 12th of January, of course, for a formal bail application. But of course, we did hear the defense saying that uh, while the suspects do want to uh, apply for bail, he doesn't think that it's wise to let them out because of uh, the community's enraged mood at the moment. Mm, hearing about hearing from the premier, I mean, you've been making this case, and we're saying you must show us the proof that Jukulain is a dangerous neighborhood. The premier himself saying when he was there that there's alarming, uh, there's alarming yeah. crime that takes place in that particular area. Alpha, were family members also there? Did you manage to speak to any of the family members of the victims? Yes, we spoke to the mother of the 14-year-old girl who was caught in the crossfire, and she was really not happy the moment she saw the two people stepping into court. She's described to Eyewitness News that CD. The moment she saw them, she felt like she could go to them and strangle them. And she's saying that the 14-year-old used to share a bedroom with her grandmother, and now she's saying that the grandmother has been left to sleep alone, share a bed with no one on a day-to-day basis. They are saying that uh, they hope that they are arrested, and uh, she's also uh, expressed, you know, anger on the fact that the two suspects want to apply for bail and she's saying that it's not fair that they get to uh, be given the opportunity to make a formal bail application if, if, it, was her, if it was up to her she says that she would not even uh, you know uh, say yes to them applying for bail so the mother and the family here is not uh, very happy uh, with the fact that these people or these two suspects want to apply for bail all right thank you so much that's ewn's alpha ramuswana who's out on social google high emotions and i understand that like I understand that on the back of a 14-year-old being gunned down, her uncle, his two friends, that emotions will be heightened in the community concerning that there are threats of mob justice. These are people who seemingly have given up on justice. And you're hearing that even the defense lawyer is saying, ideally, these two suspects who are from that neighborhood, from Soshangube, from what I understand what Alpha said, should not apply for bail, that they're best behind bars as opposed to being left out in the community where there might, there might be an even more danger. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. I see the Department of Correctional Services has set out, sent out rather uh, a statement yesterday afternoon on the conditions around Oscar Pistorius's uh, parole. Um, so Oscar Pistorius, if I remember well, it was in 20. 20- 
2013, I keep getting the years wrong. Um, the countdown towards his parole is well underway with just hours left before he's released. He was jailed for the Valentine's murder of his girlfriend, Riva Stienkamp, again back in 2013. <laughs> Bernadette Wicks is in the studio with me. She keeps nodding her head because I keep getting confused between 2012 and 2013. But anyway, Oscar is due to be released. Um, the Department of Correctional Services, as I was saying earlier, has also released a set of conditions for his parole placement. Earlier, Ray White spoke to Correctional Services and an analyst on these conditions. Let's take a quick listen before we speak to Bernadette. Yes. Right, we've spoken about parole conditions. When he does come out tomorrow, what are his parole conditions? What will he be facing? Well, we just um, highlighted a few examples, but the point that we're driving is that you'll be subjected to the general parole conditions, just like all other parolees. For instance, they will specify the time within which you're expected to be home. It's usually from uh, 7 p.m. until 7 a.m., and um, parolees are always encouraged to either seek employment or start business, but anything constructive that in a way will make them to focus and try to rebuild their lives. And then um, they are assisted in that cause in case we have to relook into those parole conditions so that they do not constrain them in that effect. But other things such as, uh, you know, consumption of alcohol that is not allowed or other substances, and um, it goes further even the areas of conducting media interviews are saying you cannot do that. And the reason is simple. We always have to protect the victims of crime. And at times things that people may say or some of the questions may push the boundaries a bit far. So to protect the victims of crime and also parolees, we restrict that they do not engage uh, with media in that particular fact. That, yeah. But there is more because at times we find that there's still other programs that they will, uh, they will need to attend and the monitoring officials do that. But in essence, parole conditions are there to assist parolees to adjust in a normal way of living. Those parole conditions. So do you have somebody who does spot check? They'll go to the place where he's staying. It may be his house. It may be his uncle's house. Do you have somebody who goes in then sort of surprise? Here we are. We want a urine test. What are you doing? How often does that happen? We have a full branch in the department. It's called uh, Community Corrections. They they will visit you at home. At times, you'll be expected to come to our offices. We call them Community Corrections offices. Uh, they are offices that you usually find in towns or um, in, uh, in areas or at times uh, where um, uh, in rural areas you find that um, some of the tribal homes will have those of, uh, those offices. And you have officials there. Yeah. Their job is to monitor parolees and to ensure that in case there are challenges, they unlock them. And um, uh, if caregivers have uh, particular matters to raise, they're able to do so. But um, uh, another error that we need to raise here is that before an inmate is placed out as, as a parolee, he ought to have a positive support system, meaning a family or someone who's, who's willing to look after that. After that. Yeah. Um, the reason being, Someone who's just been placed out is vulnerable and that person does require support. 
That's Correctional Services, speaking there to Ray White earlier, just about some of the conditions. I don't know, a lot of us journalists frowned on that issue around not speaking to the media. I did say to you a short while ago, I'm with Benedict Wicks from EWN, before I even speak about those kind of conditions, let's speak about the battle for freedom. I mean, it has been a back and forth. He was in the courts fighting for this parole. Just take me through mm. the journey a little bit, please. Yeah, so as you remember, initially he was uh, convicted of culpable homicide and sent to five years. The state took that on appeal and they were successful and his conviction was changed to one of murder and his sentence increased to six years. They took that sentence then on appeal that was then increased again to 13 years and five months. Um, Now, because of all the different uh, amendments essentially made to his conviction and his sentence, there's been quite a lot of confusion around A, when his sentence actually kicked in and then B, as a result, when he became eligible for parole because he has to serve half of his sentence before he becomes eligible for parole. So he did apply um, for parole multiple times and he applied last March and was unsuccessful. And that was because just before the hearing, the SCA, which is the court that handed down his final sentence, issued a communique which basically said he's not eligible yet. This is when his sentence kicked in. This is when he became becomes eligible for parole. And in terms of that communique, he would only have become eligible this this August. He then turned to the Constitutional Court and in October the Concord handed down a judgment essentially saying the SCA was wrong and he actually had been eligible back in March. So then there was another parole hearing convened in November last year and on the back of that parole hearing he was successful and he was granted parole. Let's speak about tomorrow. Mm. That's when he is due to be released for parole. So chances of members of the media will be camped outside Mm. um, getting a picture, an image of Oscar to me in my head are very slim. In fact, I imagine that he might actually be released in the dead of the night and we have no idea. First, let's speak about where is he going to be released from and what are we expecting and what is expected by correctional services of members of the media who do want to take people to the scene, even if we don't see Oscar to say he lives here, which has been his home for the past 11 years or so. Absolutely. Um. So... The Department of Correctional Services in that statement that they issued yesterday indicated that they're not going to be providing the media with any details around sort of the logistics around his release. They're not going to be providing us with details about his uh, release time, about transportation plans, anything like that. And they say this is ultimately to um, protect the parolee. Um, And they've said that the media is welcome to camp outside the prisons, if they want any correctional services so we will do, facility, do the guessing game of where he must have been moved to last, exactly. and then take a guess from there. That's it. Exactly, exactly. And we have to bear in mind that they can also potentially sort of shuffle him between different uh, correctional services centres mm. within the same sort of district area. Um, and so they've said we can go and we can camp outside um, the prisons if we'd like. But the DCS has said to us, uh, "You're not going to get getting visuals of him is not going to be possible." Um, we will be there tomorrow. As you say, setting the scene Where are you for going listeners. To be camping? We're still deciding that. <laughs> <laughs> and just before I let you go, let's speak a little bit about those conditions that we heard Mumalo telling Ray about. For us, it's that media mm. one. I, I was saying to you the other day, mm. oh, I imagine one big international, at least one particular journalist, will probably get that first exclusive sit down. Uh, then there's not going to be one while he's still on parole, supposedly. No. So um, they've said that he's subject to general parole conditions. And according to DCS, they actually don't allow any parolees to do any media interviews 
Vincent, um, speaking to Ray White this morning, Singabako Ngumalo said that this is in order to protect victims because sometimes interviews can go, uh, the questions asked can go a bit too far. That's exactly what he said, if I remember correctly. Um, and they want to be able to protect victims from anything like that. But we did have that that conversation and I find it, I find it difficult to understand in terms of the fact that essentially they're curtailing his his right to freedom of expression. And of course, when you are incarcerated, certain rights are can are and can be curtailed. Um, but they still that still needs to be justified. And I, I struggle to understand the justification behind that myself, but it is a decision that DCS has taken. It is an interesting one, but I think one ought to be thinking about this Dian Camps and all of this too. Often we forget about the victim and you focus so much on this one person, in this case a convicted murderer, and mm-hmm. we forget that actually there is a family that is still reeling from losing a loved one in this story. And I think that that has to be something that we do not forget about in all of this. That's Bernadette Wicks from EW and speaking about Oscar Pistorius who's due to be released on parole just hours from now really. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. Turning our attention now to Ekuruleni, where a 42-year-old man appeared on charges linked to the killing of his three family members. It's understood their remains were discovered by community members in the Ronda Belt area on the back of a bucky. Tabiso Goba from EWN was there yesterday. He joins us now on the line to bring us up to speed with the story. Tabiso, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. It was a shocking scene from what I understand what residents found yesterday in Ronda Belt. Let's start with the background to this matter, please. Um, yes, good afternoon, CD. So, um, as I said, you know, he, the, the bodies um, of, uh, of three people were found um, wrapped in blankets um, in, a, in a baki. The baki was abandoned in a field in Rondebelt. And I can tell you, CD, that um, the community, um, the baki had been uh, abandoned for a long time, but it was only up until 3 p.m. on Tuesday uh, afternoon that the community started um, smelling a very strong odor coming from that baggy. And when they went to go and look inside, obviously they found those um, dismembered bodies of those um, three people from the Bota family. Now, um, the police have told us that they, um, the three people, which are Johan, Jane, and Sunei Bota, they all died through multiple stab wounds. So obviously this um, has very much shocked the community of roundabouts. I can tell you, TD, we did speak to the neighbors um, just to get their thoughts on what um, on, on, on the incident. And this is what one uh, of the neighbors had to say. Uh, since roundabout is a closed community, we look after each other. This is a shocking that uh, an interpersonal crime has happened within a home because everything we always discuss even in our cpf meetings is that we should protect one another but when it happens within the inbounds of our family it shocks the community you know it's a small small community we believe some people know each other some people are reserved by, to themselves and to find that a man has killed his father mother and a sister wiping the whole family lineage like that within a matter this is shocking appalling. So now he was due to appear in court. I believe you were in a session just not too long ago. Proceedings were taking place. Has he appeared yet? What do we know about him and what happens to him next? 
Yes, um, Didi, he just made an appearance. Um, I think we can now name him. His name is uh, Eugene Border. So the people that he murdered, uh, he's accused of murdering away uh, his uh, father, um, his mother, and his sister. Um, I can tell you, Didi, that he's, um, he's a fairly tall man, um, balding of medium build. Um, he, um, he's obviously unemployed, so he asked to be given a state or legal aid lawyer. Um, he said that um, he does have one previous conviction for fraud, which was about 25 years ago. So the matter has been postponed to, the, to next week, Thursday, where he's, he's expected to make a formal bail application. All right, thank you so much. That's EWN's Tabiso Gorba. I was out in Ukuruleni where 42-year-old Eugene Buata just appeared um, for charges linked to the killing of his three family members, a father, mother, and a, a, a sister, I believe, uh, whose bodies were found in a bucky in the Ronda Belt area. It is now half past 12. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. So I've asked Khotso Silo to stick around. You're still listening to the Midday Report. It's 12.35. My name is TD. I'm standing in for Mandy Wiener. I've asked you to stick around because I cricket, ne? I just want to talk about the cricket for like two seconds. Yeah. So yesterday I heard people saying all sorts of things. I, heard, I think I heard somebody saying um, carnage. I've heard the phrase carnage. <laughs> I've heard um, concerning. I've heard dismal. And I was like, yo. People love test cricket, 100%. but we are not loving the Proteus. Yeah. I said during the World Cup that I don't watch them because they're shy. Must, mm. they're not, they, they, somebody said I must stop calling them chokers because when you call people chokers, if they're on a winning streak and then they choke. Yeah. We are not those people. Our Proteus <laughs> are dismally performing wire wire. Is that it? Is that accurate? Uh, not not wire wire, CD. I think uh, the the chokers tag came when it came to uh, the cricket World Cup in particular. Yeah. Is that South Africa as a build up to World Cups? We 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 look sharp. We look like the team. A lot of people um, betting people put money on the protest to do well, and they simply choke at 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 World Cups. And I think in this test series in particular, South Africa has done pretty well. We won the first test uh, by an innings and thirty two runs, and we came to Cape Town hopeful that we'll have a serious whitewash against India and and that doesn't seem like the case because you know yesterday in the first session we got bowled out for a mere 55 runs and um you know the the, the test is 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 looking awfully like it might finish within 2 days and that could be a record yeah i heard that even that 55 runs that in itself is something we hadn't seen since like the eight, eight, 1980s like yep. it's something that we have not done in a really long time but you're now saying that we could have a record ending we'll be in the history books for something yep. no matter what is that what you're saying no matter what the outcome is will definitely be in the in the history books but you know it's a little bit also uh concerning when when you look at a test match where south africa collapsed for 55 runs then india came into bat Yep. Then they they were at some point 153 for four, and 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 in a in a space of a few overs, 11 balls to be specific, um, then they were all out for 154. Oi. You know, so they lost all six yeah. wickets for no runs. Um, <laughs> so it, it it just shows you the unpredictability of, of the, the pitch okay. that they are the playing pitch. on. Okay. And I think you know, Test cricket is usually played over five days. Yes. And when you do prepare a cricket wicket, you want to create a fair contest between bat and ball. 
Okay. And it should be able to last an entire five days. And there's probably and people who bought tickets for, for day five and it might look like but it's finishing today. Askies. Before I let you go though, there are constant conversations about what we need to do with our squad mm. to get back to its former glory because mm. we the Proteus really were once an incredible team. Mm. I remember the Proteus from childhood being amazing. Mm. Um, what is your sense of what needs to happen with Cricket SA to fix the team? Some people mm. saying start with start with younger players, yeah. build them up, um, don't try win anything for now. Mm. Your sense of what needs to happen? I think uh, we are on the right track, particularly with the new director of cricket, uh, Enoch Ungwe. He's he's a great student of the game and and he split the white ball cricket from the test cricket and he's he's got a head coach for 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 one day international and in t20 cricket and he's got a a coach for the test team and you know after splitting that he's identified the young players uh within our domestic league that need to be there we have a lot of debutants and and fresh faces in the squad you know there's a few experienced guys dean alga who's captain in the side today will be leaving as well this is his last match in charge of of of, of south africa so uh, you know, there's a lot to be hopeful for, but very little to be hopeful for today. <laughs> okay, I like the way you put it. So not all is lost. He is quite an optimist. So we'll take that. Thank you so much. That's Hotso Solo from EWN Sports Team talking us through a uh, record-making cricket that's currently unfolding uh, at the moment. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. Good day, Sidi. It's the same. Exactly what's the big fuss about Oscar Pistorius being released on parole? He isn't the first person to be released on parole. And sure, you can argue GBV. But if you look at the case of Flaba, the woman who had killed him, Cindy Sue Manuela, she was also released on parole. There wasn't a big fanfare about it. Flaba was also a victim of GBV. But because the murderer in this case was a woman. You guys didn't make all the sorts of noise about it. You didn't want to camp outside of prison to say I've been released on parole. You didn't want to stalk it. So you have to be consistent in how you do things. Thank you so much for that voice note. Yeah, you're right. Consistency does matter. But you can't compare Cindy Siwe to Oscar Pistorius, eh? Oscar Pistorius was a decorated global athlete when this happened. Let's not let's not do that. You know, you're comparing carrots and sticks, eh? Apples and pears, oranges and apples. It just it, it's not the same um about that. I don't think it's obsessive. This was a global icon. This was a sweetheart, if you may, when this incident happened, when he was convicted of murder. It's not the same. And Leanna, people cared about that story. When she came out and she did interviews, people were bothered. So let's not do that. Don't make us look like we are vultures. No, it's not that. Coming up, I'm going to speak to Dr. Zamani. So, but before that, I need to actually tell you, there's a weird thing that happened yesterday where Suddenly, there were reports that former President Tabumbeki had passed on. Uh, I mean, I looked at the report and I heard 74-year-old. I was like, aye, 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 this is a lie. The man is turning 82 this year. I see his foundation had released a statement saying that it was aware of recent unfounded reports circulating on social media about the health of the patron of the Tabumbeki Foundation. They denied the reports and wished to assure the public that the president is in good health. They also urged and cautioned uh, people to be responsible when engaging online with information particularly during a time when misinformation can spread rapidly. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. 
Um, Zamani Sol, the ANC Northern Cape Chairperson and Premier, has penned an interesting opinion piece. You can find it on ewn.co.za where he poses the question, is 30 years enough to eliminate the enduring impact of apartheid colonialism? He speaks of lessons from Vietnam, China and the US with the last country's progress since the abolishment of slavery being part of his talking points. He also speaks about how this question in our context will be made even more complicated because this is an election year. Yeah, remember that. And because we continue to grapple with the burdens of high unemployment, poverty and inequality, Dr. Zamani Sol joins me now on the line. Um, Zamani, thank you for your time. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Yeah, good afternoon, Siri, and good afternoon to the listeners. I'm happy to be here. You're posing an interesting question, um, and it's forced one to go back and fully understand what apartheid was and its impact on the country. If you had to succinctly explain it, from your context, as you wrote this opinion piece, how do you understand what the system has done and its enduring legacy on South Africa? Uh, take the, the devastation that uh, apartheid colonialism did uh, in in South Africa. I don't think it one it, it, it unmatched uh, in terms of our social fabric and in terms of the socio-economic landscape of the country. And let me just give you an example. By the time, by the the 1996 census, uh, we only had less than 40% of households in this country that were connected to the electricity grid. And today we are sitting with about 95% of the households which are connected to the electricity grid. So by then, if you look at what was actually the issue is that we had electricity which was primarily meant for white households. So that's the kind of society that we are coming out. The levels of income inequality, the interracial income inequality, it's still there, it finds expression in South African society, and these are all the issues that we'll have to look at how we are going to deal with as a democratic government. And most importantly as well, is the, is the, is the apartheid spatial planning, uh, what we are talking about today of uh, ekasi, uh, we call it ekasi, but it's black townships, which were not meant to be habitable and uh, not even single infrastructure was put in place for your basic amenities of life. And that became the burden of the democratic dispensation to do that. It's quite clear that you recognize that 30 years cannot undo the many wrongs uh, of a system like apartheid that's set in place. But the question that I, I, I was grappling with as well when I read that is the one of giving hope. Your sense is that your party has done that. But I'd ask you, even in spite of the many on goals that have undermined the ANC's own vision at the start of democracy, that's the yes, whole. Yes, you're, you're quite correct. Check uh, <clears throat> uh, the journey of transformation in any country, and particularly in post-colonial countries, is not linear, not straightforward journey. Uh, You can take two steps forward and take one step backward and even sometimes take three steps backward. So that's the kind of the journey. It's very iterative. It's back and forth, back and forth, trying to put in place policy measures and as well as implement programs to eradicate this uh, bad legacy of colonialism and apartheid. So that's what has been happening over the past 30 years. 
I have not found anybody who disputes the fact that there has been progress over the past 30 years. All the people I've been engaging with, they acknowledge that there has been progress. If you look at the latest report of the National Planning Commission, which is which is tasked with the responsibilities of putting up a long-haul plan for the country up to 2030, they said there has been progress. But there are certain areas where we've not made much progress which actually speaks to the growing population of the country. And one of those areas is the high levels of unemployment. Nobody can actually say levels of unemployment in the country are acceptable. We've got high levels of unemployment, which directly impact on young people. And you've got high levels of poverty, which is as a result that so many people are unemployed. And you've got high levels of income inequality that we need to address. But what is very much interesting around issues of income inequality is not acute, is not in acute form as it was before 1994, interracial, it's intra Inequality between amongst racial grouping, inequality amongst blacks is also one of the areas of concern. And the reason why we are sitting with that problem is because of the work that the government has done to ensure that we've got a big layer of previously disadvantaged into your middle income bracket whilst we are sitting with such high levels of poverty. That is progress. That's what countries like China have done. We've got about 500 million Chinese now who are within your middle income group and that augurs well for the economy of China because we've got more Chinese who want high value goods and that in itself in terms of household expenditure it assists in growing the economy. So there are good things that took place, and there are still some bad things that are taking place, uh, which all of us, we should actually focus on trying to address. But what I'm saying in the article, what is lacking is collective agents of political leaders in the country. And what do I you can't mean? Be, mm-hmm. I can't say at any given point where the different political parties will say, let's sit around the table and ask ourselves what is good for the country. What is the direction that the country should pursue and collectively and collectively abide by that program? I can't see that happening. Why is and it that our parties, hold on Zamani, as you point out, I think that issue about leadership is quite important to me. Why yes. is it though that our political players seem to lack the necessary maturity or care about the state of the country in order to come together around the table and discuss the way forward? Because when you look at what's happening with coalitions at, at a micro level, at, at local government yes. level rather, it tells you that there's a lack of maturity, it tells you that political parties are selfish and that the interest of the majority of society are not top of mind when they sit down and make these deals? Check even in countries where in countries where you've got the bipartisan politics like the US. The Democrats and the Republicans, there are certain issues concerning the country's developmental trajectory where they agree on. Uh, if if and that happens in many countries, you even go to the to the UK. But what is actually happening in South Africa, our politics are so much polarized that you don't get that collective agent. For an example, now I was reading the report of the IEC, you put about 600 political parties that are registered with the, with the IEC for a population of about 62 million, or 600 political parties. And from the 600 political parties, you got about 300 parties that will be contesting for elections. So, 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 
that what that demonstrates is is the levels of of polarization and fragmentation of politics in the country, which makes it very much impossible. And what is actually happening now, the issue that you raise on what is happening with coalition, coalition coalitions in the country are just a mess. It's an amorphous mm. mess. <laughs> and, definitely, and definitely not even a single South African would want to see themselves subjected to this mess post the 2024 election. You deserve better. And, but before I let you go, Zamane, I'm running out of time. I want to speak to right. Dr. Ibrahim Havi. But before I let you go, just before I let you go, I want your reaction. Last year, you and I sat down in 20... No, now it's two years. In 2022, you and I sat yes. down when the ANC had its uh, uh, its conference, national, national conference. conference. Yes. And I asked you about former President Jacob Zuma. And I think the words he used is spent force, saying that he is a spent force. Now, the ANC's big birthday is around the corner. As it stands, we understand that former President Jacob Zuma will also be in Pomalanga hosting an event on behalf of the MK party. Do your sentiments that is a spent for still stand? I think I still, I still, I still, I still maintain the view that it's a spent force and it's just a mere over-exaggeration of what we are getting around the MK party. I don't think it will make any major impact for 2024 elections. We will wait and see. Thank you so much for your time. That's, no, thank you very much. Today. That's NC Northern Cape Chairperson Zamani, Dr. Zamani Sol, speaking a little bit about um, pondering over 30 years of democracy. And of course, I had to slip in that question about former President Jacob Zuma, which segues really nicely into my next conversation. I'm joined now by Dr. Ibrahim Harvey, who's also written an interesting piece on the former president, the MK, and the ANC Quagmire. His op-ed you can find on News24 site, on News24.co com rather and then Zamani Souls if you want to read up on that that's on ewn.co.za Dr. Harvey thank you so much for your time I was reading your piece and you, I, I think you speak about how he's inherently cross and opportunistic duplicity which lacks integrity you run us through a bit of background about who the former president is as you try and make sense of pretty much the speech that was delivered on why he'll remain ANC but support the MK party. Just your sense of what you've been observing around the former president. Yeah, well, I think I I succinctly capture it in the column. You know, it's all there to read. But uh, to just uh, quickly respond to you, you know, I uh, certainly, you know, I've studied Zuma from the beginning, really, of the arms deal. I did many pieces over the years about, uh, you know, I've interviewed him. I know him well. It's really a a, a lot of bitterness, you know, a a vindictive bitterness, you know, because, you know, uh, how rich it is of him to be attacking Ramaphosa and the ANC. In the column, I stated very clearly, nobody can dispute it. Nobody has brought the ANC to disrepute more than Zuma has. If you look at Kandla, if you look at the arms deal, I mean, you know, the Concord uh, judgment sent him to 15 months imprisonment. I mean, you know, and and, and, uh, he's fought tooth and nail to not get him into court for how many years because he knows once you get him into court, he is in trouble. Zuma will go to jail. But the ANC sits between a rock and a hard place at Mm. this very moment, I can tell you now. If you read what's been happening since the, the launch of this party and what he had to say, and now uh, also uh, in Mpumalanga or somewhere, uh, there'll be another uh, 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 party uh, activity. What is happening really is that, you see, the ANC can't do anything about it now. Zuma has basically, he's right, uh, Mumbarula, 
he's effectively decampaigning the NC, although he's caught up in so many contradictions because how can you conceivably uh, say that your ANC, what is bigger than the ANC, your ANC till the death, and then you, and then you don't vote for the ANC, and you also call on the electorate not to vote for the ANC, but to vote for MK. Then you try to make the MK look like the ANC. MK was a military wing of the ANC. It was banned in 1993. It's just playing around, you know. What Zuma is doing, really, I think it's just to frustrate the hell out of the ANC. But there's no doubt, particularly in KZN, but not only KZN, I can tell you now, if you read what's been happening, I mean, some figures have been thrown around about a million, four million members, people are flooding now to join. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are flooding to join that party because the ANC is a mess. Let me tell you, it's a... I mean, That's the thing. No hold on, Dr. Harvey, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to take two steps back very quickly. Yes. The issue with the former president, Jacob Zuma, part of what I think he behaves the way that he does because he's been allowed to do so by this party. Is the ANC not responsible, partly responsible for what it's dealing with at the moment? No. He's gotten away with no. so much, No. <laughs> No, absolutely. Just like Julius Malema, more so with uh, Zuma. Zuma's a, a product of the ANC. Let me tell you where the problem began. And you, at the end of the day, there are many calls. You've got to do it with the ANC membership, the branches, the people who go to national conference or delegates. That is where they elected 2005 from Becky Fiasim from the cabinet, Fiasim. 18 months later, the ascendancy of Zuma occurs. They elect him at Polokwane. After Becky fired him because of the Hillary Squire's judgment found a generally corrupt relationship between him and Shapir Sheikh, convicted Foster. So that is how, in the ANC, to be honest with you, even now, he's surrounded with allegations of corruption. The ANC members, no matter which province, they don't care. They don't care. And that's why you can see now they're flooding now to the to this MK party, you know. Uh, and that is it. That is the biggest problem. That's why I had a column once I devoted. I said maybe it's not the leadership of the ANC. Maybe it resides the biggest problem. But they're waking up. That's why the ANC lost uh, the power of production, Houting, Jovic, 2016, 2021. They lost it. So I think they, they're waking up. But the ANC really is because, you see, constitutionally, they're supposed to expel Zuma. Yes. Go and read the ANC constitution. No, but I've seen that misconduct. I know, yeah. But, so, but they but can't. You, because but if but you Ibrahim, you say it's best. Now, we're running out of time. So very quickly, you think it's best to ignore him, not to take action? Well, I'll tell you something. Better do that. Because if they took action against him and they expelled him, oh, then I can tell you, the mushroom, the, the MK membership will spell, sp- spell <laughs> dramatically. play the victim card. And we've seen how he's mastered that. I've run out of time, so I'm going to have to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. That's Dr. Ibrahim Harvey speaking a little bit about uh, the MK party phenomenon. Can I tell you what has been interesting to me, like my five cents about it as well, <laughs> is that um, the fact that there was an areta and now Kalni House is a member of the EFF. The fact that there is an act by Ace Mahashule, and then you've got the MK party, that should tell you that this was not a planned move, right? A properly planned move. The fact that they are so fractured, and these are people who have been in one corner as allies. And I also think people don't know or pay attention to the fact, to the fact that people who were once loyal to former President Jacob Zuma in the ANC were left dead in the cold, unaware of this move. They remain really upset. I speak to some of those who are linked to the RET movement who are like, 
for all our loyalty, this is what we get. He did not tell us that he was moving in this direction. We had no idea that this was about to happen to us. And some have refused to move. I heard that um, in Pumalanga, like a big wig, and one who was associated with Zuma, who was seen in the streets of Nkandla demonstrating in the lead-up to the former president's arrest. I think that was in 2021. So those kind of people are apparently not even willing to budge. And that's quite telling, really, of what this project of the MK party is. What's interesting was reading also that the weekend where the NC turns, I think, 112, they'll be in Pomalanga. Their birthday is on Monday. As you know, those January 8 celebrations have multiple events that take place and it, it results in a big rally at the end of the week. So that weekend, apparently, uh, he'll also be in Pomalanga hosting a party. Often what you'd see is the EFF also have an activity to try and take some media attention away from the NC. But no, now it's from a president will also be in the province, also attempting to get media attention. Interesting times ahead for the governing party 